0: hello and welcome to the alcohol problem podcast i'm dr james morris an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues this stems in part from my own experiences so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem in this episode i talk to joe heaney we talk about his life his experiences of drug and alcohol use and recovery and his experience of setting up and running a drug and alcohol service. Yeah, so thanks so much for joining me, Joe. Could you just start by telling me a bit about yourself uh, briefly, and then how you actually came to, you know, develop an alcohol problem, or however you'd kind of describe it, and, uh, you know, what, what, a bit about that background story, if, if you like.
1: Sure. Um, so uh, I, I'm a man of advancing years. I, uh, I'll be 60 in a few years. Um, I've spent the last 15 years running Resolve, which is a drug and alcohol treatment agency that developed into specialising in homelessness, sleeping rough. Uh, and then also, we're very proud of the fact that we were able to put together a project that uh, supports people from all walks of life, but who are suffering all kinds of Inequalities, issues—you know, whether that be food, finance, you know, any kind of deprivation, poverty, etc.—came to that um, as a direct result of uh, my personal experiences with uh, drugs and alcohol. Um, and uh, I came to that having been a firefighter for 14 years, working shoreside merchant navy as, a, as an advocate for merchant navy officers, um, and uh, that was over a period of, of approximately 20 years. Um, I grew up in Luton. I'm um, the firstborn of uh, two Irish parents uh, who met in London and uh, they split up when I was four. My grandmother moved us, my brother and my mother went me to uh, a place in Luton, and I grew up in an ordinary working class environment. Um, so my mum remarried um, when uh, I was about eight. Not a bad person, not a good person, a nondescript human being in my life who didn't drink, from what I can remember, uh, who smoked the occasional cigar. Um, I was never abused as a child. I, I, you know, whilst my life was a little bit complex, I never felt that I really had a particularly terrible childhood. Um, I'm not aware of my mother even drinking, although there was there was smoking in the house. My stepfather, as he was then, um, he had parents that, uh, you know, were ordinary grounded human beings, didn't seem to have any issues, worked uh, and so on. However, around Christmas time, there was a very relaxed attitude to to alcohol. And as an eight, nine, ten year old, we were were allowed to drink a a little Advocar uh, or there was these little small cans. I always remember these little tiny cans of Watney's Pale Ale. I, I would be given one of those as a boy at maybe nine or 10 years of age, as if as if the alcohol was special because of the Christmas period. So it sort of normalized drinking to me in a way that I hadn't really thought about until quite recently, actually. My first alcohol experience, I was 16. A friend of mine, uh, similar age, uh, worked in an off-license part-time. We were able to procure, six of us, uh, a half bottle of spirit each, uh, which we then proceeded to drink that evening um and my memory was it was brilliant i loved it everyone else around me was absolutely annihilated uh, including one of my friends who got very 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 drunk there was much adult interaction about who did this how did it happen and, and so on but my, my first experience with alcohol was co- the complete opposite of what you normally hear with people going oh i got terribly ill. i really hated it hmm. i loved it i drank half a bottle of vodka and i wanted more so quickly Got into drinking regularly. I was a local pub I used to go to that uh, used to let me drink, uh, as long as I'd put my drink on another table and, and stood and played darts somewhere else. At 16 years of age, they were serving me pints. It was fine. And, and so it went. I carried on drinking socially in pubs that would let me. Um, you know, eventually that moved on to the drinking Thunderbird wine. We used to drink that and then go out and, and, and all sorts of things. So I'm, I'm talking 40 odd years ago now where the modern culture is talking about pre-drinks, we were doing it then. We were drinking that, that, that strong wine and then going out and, and, and so on. Um, I joined the fire service in 88. And in those days, we had a bar on the station. Which when I, whenever I tell people that, they're mortified. But it's how it was in those days. It's long since been, been stopped. And uh, so we were, we were allowed to drink on duty. Um, I became a union official, and trade union culture in those days was full of drinking. Lots and lots of meetings in bars, lots and lots of conferences in which you had lots and lots of alcohol. And so, my day job and my my union activity and interests and my social activity all surrounded uh, were all surrounded by alcohol. All well, my friends drank, um, and I was I was using recreational drugs across all of that period from the age of fifteen and up, and so. I didn't really know that I'd had a problem because I was just doing the thing. I had a good job, I worked hard, I bought a house, I, had, I started a family, all of the things. And so it, it didn't occur to me at any point in time that there was an issue drinking super lagers when I was in my mid-twenties, because that's what I did. And, and you know, it was fine. My friends were like, well, just, Joe just drinks a lot.
0: Presumably they were also drinkers as well. It was just maybe your your kind of drinking was... The, the kind of the most out of that group um, you know certainly like people you know when they're when you're in your drinking kind of periods or whatever that we tend to socialize with other people that kind of more or less want to do the same and that gives us the kind of false normalization of normative misperception as it might be called that that's just kind of normal like most people are really shocked if you tell them or don't believe you that that kind of actually most people drink lit for quite little amounts you know like within the guidelines but if you tell that to people that are drinking larger amounts <laughs> um you know they just you can't believe it because your kind of smaller social network is just drinking so much more than that but presumably for you it's just yeah normal part of life and an enjoyment and part of your identity and you're kind of de-stressing and all that kind of stuff
1: no, indeed, it, it absolutely was. We we met as we met as couples and families and socially. And you know, if we had a barbecue, there would be drinking. And it wasn't raucous drunkenness. It wasn't it wasn't wild debauchery. It was just
0: hmm.
1: you know you wouldn't you wouldn't imagine not taking at least eight beers with you or, or whatever. Um, I mean, even even the smoking of cannabis. You know, I would sit in a barbecue with a number of us having a spliff as a social activity. Hmm. Nobody was getting, you know, in a, a, a any kind of feeling that this, this was leading us to a terrible place because it was it was normalized within my social network. Um, not everybody smoked cannabis, but, you know, large numbers of us did. And some people only smoked when they came to my house, for example, um, that might happen. And, uh, and so it, it was it was a very normal Way of living for me. It was all part of, of who I was. The, the way, as you say, the way that I unwound the, my social activity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of an analogy of, of, uh, of the generation before us who would come home and immediately go straight to the, to the whiskey or have a brandy at, upon walking in the door. Well, I would have a spliff and a super lager. Kind of, what's the difference? And, uh, and so it was that really I sort of, carried on there wasn't there wasn't the breakfast beer as i would call it i was working normally um like i said i was i was i was working hard and, and i had a house and a home and a mortgage and, and uh uh then in the mid 90s uh, i had some issues surrounding my own problems with relationships given that my mother had married and remarried and divorced again before i'd left school um that's probably some some history there um and consequently i then suddenly found myself drinking very very heavily as a way of self medicating my emotional response to that Hmm. um until i had a a, quite a severe I'm, i'm probably downplaying it a little bit but i had a bit of an episode which was linked to an emotional outburst and an emotional response combined with alcohol um that did see me uh, have an episode that caused me to end up in a sh- very short period of, uh, in um, prison on remand after seven months of uh, going through to court. Um, I was eventually discharged with no charges. Uh, it took a while for everything to come out. Um, I had lost my job at that point in time, um, but was reinstated. Um, and even then, even then I didn't think that what I needed to do was stop drinking. Hmm. Um, so I, I had a period of time where I had to sort of get my head back together again and get back to work. Um, I'd spent the last seven or eight months drinking quite heavily because I hadn't had anything to do because I was waiting for this thing to happen. So that calmed down for a few years until eventually I went for a career change, which was all fine. And at that point, I was sober. Um, but again, a few years after that, I had some issues um, and I left work. By, uh, by negotiation, probably jumped before I was pushed in truth. Um, and then proceeded into the, probably the darkest period of my life in which my drug use, my alcohol use became what I would call dangerous. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so I was drinking in the region of between 60 and 90 units a day, every day. I was misusing class A drugs quite heavily. I was now associating with people that were not part of my friendship circle in order to precipitate the use of those things, um, and eventually, again, had another episode that saw me hospitalised, uh, period in a mental health institution. And fortunately for me, I had a, a community practice nurse that was supporting me through my addiction st- stuff, and she sent me off to a rehab. And that was that was that moment. I had I didn't have had no grand epiphany. I had a really terrible experience that that resulted in being tasered. Um, and that and that was I woke up from that thinking uh, that is definitely not a good feeling it took me mm. the thick end of two months to get over the pain of that and that was a stark awakening
0: so you, you say that was a stark awakening just in terms of like a broader well I need to kind of sort my life out or uh, you know where where was the kind of recognition of the problematic role of drugs and alcohol within that sort of overall problem like did you see the problems as like not about drugs and alcohol but they were just the things that were kind of masking or seeing you through or like you said earlier like kind of controlling with emotional problems.
1: I, uh, I suppose say I said got myself into a very very dark place in which my life had stopped functioning in any on any level I was literally moving from one moment to the next in order to to be able to just try and get through and uh, so I was I wasn't at the point where I was stealing from shops or anything like that. I was a pretty rubbish shoplifter, it's got to be said. Um So, you know, I wasn't looking at a career that was going to fund uh, my drinking and drugs. So it was people giving me money and various other things uh, when it got at, when the money ran out. Hmm. Um I think what happened was I look back. Once I got into hospital, I'd had a very quick alcohol detox and, um, Fortunately, my, my head got clear quite quite quickly within about a week or so, and I started reflecting on where I'd been. I had a four day blackout, in which people later told me that I had been talking to them, so I didn't even know what had gone on for four days. And, I, and clearly, I had to go to shops and things because I didn't have a four day stock of alcohol. Um, when I came to after the incident in my flat, I was actually my first sight was a, a colleague who was an ambulance and uh it was it was one of those things really I just looked at him and Gary's name is and he just said to me Joe what's going on mate and uh all I could think about was I needed my two best pals with me and uh, so I just said you know can you go and get Pete and Steve and they, they that's what they did they they came to the hospital as good friends do and and I think it was that I was I was so humbled by the fact that I had these people who had had almost no contact with me for a while because I'd withdrawn myself um who immediately upon knowing something was wrong came and uh that was you know that was a moment then and it was and it was a, there was another moment I remember being in in the A&E um in a little room by myself uh, and this I always remember this lovely little old lady came uh, to see me and I don't know who she was and I, uh, she said to me lovey they're going to ask you if you want to go to hospital I suggest you say yes because they're going to send you anyway it's like, okay, then I'll go. And I think it was that I felt at this point that there was nowhere else to go, but to just, to, to just give myself up to the process. Hmm. And I suppose it was that I was, uh, I was ready because it got, got as low for me as hmm. I was prepared to go.
0: Hmm. So uh, is, is that when you ended up in, in the rehab and what was that, what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, so, I, I mean, I'd been in rehab a year earlier. I did six weeks, um, which had been paid for for me. Um, it wasn't It wasn't on the National Health. And uh, I came out on the Thursday and I was drunk by Monday. So that didn't work very well. Um, consequently, the NHS said, well, you've already been to rehab, even though they hadn't funded it. So I had to wait. Um, and so I'd done a 12-step. I'd done a six-week 12-step rehab. And I did. I did. What I did was I. Uh, I did the, the twelve-week version of their treatment program in six weeks, which basically meant I crushed it out and uh, didn't really take it in. So um, on this occasion, I was able to select a place that was more in keeping with with who I am. So I found a place that did activities that was CBT based, that was going to look at, at supporting me in terms of my cognitive understanding of who I was and who I could be and why I was doing what I was doing. Um, And uh, so that was residential in North Devon. And uh, I met some people there who, and talking about staff in particular, who were able to help me look at myself in ways that I hadn't done for a very long time. And I also met some people in treatment. I mean, some inte- intelligent, articulate human beings. I met a classical musician. I met somebody who was formerly a teacher. I met a guy that was a chef. He, I mean, he used to do Sunday lunch. Oh, my God, it was so good. Um And he'd worked in two Gordon Ramsay kitchens. And mm. I can still see him now with his tea towel over his shoulder, listening to Oasis. Um, and uh, and he always volunteered. Don't put me in the kitchen. But if you didn't, then he would say, I'll do it, Joe. Um, because we had to look after ourselves on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday, and um, and others I met, um, I shared a room with a guy um, who I've had no contact with for some years now, um, and and I remember having incredible philosophical conversations with this intelligent, articulate younger man than, than me, who just couldn't stop using heroin, um, and and I don't know, but it quite possibly killed him. Um, So so I met a a whole host of people. Uh, My key worker was a former Marine who had seen men whose colleagues die. Um, You know, I couldn't couldn't comprehend what it would be like to be shot at. So I I was being given access, if you like, to so many diverse lives of people who were, on the face of it, intelligent, articulate human beings, but all of which shared the same problem as me, is we didn't know how to say no to our drug Mm. of choice. And so... It was hard. It was emotional. It was difficult on occasions. Um, I was there for three three months. So we had a re- detox, three and a half months. I literally went missing for three and a half months, and almost no one noticed, apart from my closest friends. And that's how withdrawn my life had become. It wasn't until I got out that I said oh, I've been you've been to treatment, and people are, oh I didn't know you'd gone away. So that's a, that's a bit of an indictment as well. That that made me think a bit about what had I been doing for the last couple of years, and. Uh, and and I thank them. That rehab has long since been closed, and that's due to financial reasons, as is always the case with these things, and it's a shame. Um, but that that place really, really helped me, really, really helped me.
0: And it sounds like what, what kind of helped you was connecting with other people and the process of, like you say, kind of, I think, self-reflection. And how, is it since then that you felt like you've been in recovery, Do you use that term, and you know are those the things that you feel like are what worked for you and
1: yeah I think um I mean I've people who know me will always, will always say you know I have strong held opinions and I'm, I'm not afraid to voice them um I, I'm I'm not a therapist so I make a point of making that clear uh, I didn't come out and then train as a therapist you know, on any level what I did was in that year between rehabs set up an organization then went into treatment and then came out and said okay what can we do to make this work um i don't use the word recovery very often because what i find is when i've heard people talk about it they talk about recovery as if it's an entity um and i and so i what i have said to people historically over the years is don't see it as a thing just see it as a way of living and and it's i think it's that thing it's uh you know, I've had all sorts of people say to me, you know, you're not, are you not drinking? And well, you know, why? You know, the why doesn't matter. And there are fewer people saying that now. Um, I used to say I'm the designated driver, and that was enough for people. I think it's it's about how you feel about yourself and about how you interact with the world around you, and whether or not you can or can't do things. Um, and and being able to be comfortable in your own skin. And I think you made the point. Uh, it's about connecting with people and have, having sound, meaningful relationships with people that are the key, I think, to giving people a life that allows them to be able to live then, you know, chemical-free or substance-free. Or. I saw a great – it might have been a TED talk, actually. It talked about uh, the rat test. Have you seen that one with the uh, – and I and I thought that was interesting when, when they made Rat Utopia and gave them friends, they almost never went to the feeder that had the heroin in it. They pretty much used the one, and they knew that that one uh, had heroin in it, but they didn't use it.
0: Yeah, like, yeah, Bruce Alexander's Rat Park, yeah, became really famous in the 70s because it, it you know, really was kind of yeah. quite a strong case that it's social connections uh, provide or, uh, you know, happy, healthy social environment, i.e. the rat park where they had, you know, trees painted on the sides and activities and other rats ultimately to socialize with wouldn't just, uh, whereas if you put them in a cage with no stimulus, um, they'll just self-medicate until they kind of die, basically. Um, so yeah, like that, that, yeah, I absolutely agree with you that recovery, uh, addiction, whatever you want to call it, should be viewed as a human experience of something not being quite right in, in your life or more than not quite right. Um And yeah, that, that process fundamentally isn't about your kind of genes or your kind of, I mean, obviously there is neuroadaptation that takes place in addiction and recovery, but that's not the solution. The solution is in our lived experience and our social connections. And I think Life is stressful and throws lots of challenges at us. But I think, again, going back to what you said earlier about drugs and alcohol being a kind of emotional damping mechanism and a kind of immediate stress response that, in the context of your life where alcohol had been so normalized and so available, that was just, you know, almost the kind of normal thing to do. I think the same for me when I went, you know, as a teenager, we could buy alcohol from pretty much any off license and drink in parks and, you know, I went to university initially to drink and have fun as I would see it. So, um, yeah, I didn't realize at that time that, that that appealed to me so strongly because I think it provided in some way, similarly, an escapism, a way of releasing and letting go of kind of stuff that I'd maybe emotional stuff that I'd kind of maybe internalized. Um so, yeah, I think that's a really nice description. I really liked the way that you said, you know, you met these amazing people and really connected with them. Um And, you know, that that was a kind of process of finding a way back in the world without needing or using drugs and alcohol as a kind of default switch off or escape or whatever.
1: No, indeed. And, and the guy that ran the rehab, well, he, he set the rehab up. He, I, I met him and uh, he, he worked in the city originally and uh, he couldn't get a rehab for his brother who had an alcohol problem. And he, he didn't tell me much detail, but that's as understood it. And uh, so fair play to the guy. He set up this residential rehab and he lived in a two bed flat in order to be able to fund the rehab. And he was there cleaning out the gutters, mowing the lawn and and, uh, and all of the things. And uh, what he did notice was that there were a f- few people that were getting quite close to completing their treatment but not really making the end because it can get quite tricky at the end because you're no longer misusing, you're no longer full of chemicals, all your emotions are all, you know, out in the open and everything gets, gets very difficult for a, for a little period of time until you learn to be able to control that a lot, a lot better and, and feel as well actually be able to feel and uh, so as a little bit of a character he said well what I want to do is I want to reward people for having completed treatment successfully and uh, we went through a little process where he asked people what sort of things anyway he ended up saying okay what I'll do is I'll pay for a a day's glider uh, fund for you so you can go and you can you can go in a glider and you can fly a glider and three of us at the end of my period there uh, went for this amazing weekend now he paid for that He did that himself. That didn't come out of any funding. And and again, it was like, this guy inspired me. I mean, uh, half of the model, some of the model that Resolve is based on, came from how he did things. Um, And what I did was I, I applied various aspects of the experiences that I had had that were positive to a model of treatment that wasn't just about looking at the clinical aspect of a person's addiction. It was looking about... You know who they were how their life had been whether or not they needed support in dealing with trauma because that's often the case as well whether or not they had issues with relationships and all of those things some things were done within the group environment and some things are absolutely only appropriate to be done with a qualified counsellor and we tried to do activities we tried to have some fun Um, we would always have a christmas lunch for example um, for people before christmas um, and it was, it was all about saying to people, well, life can be fun now. You don't actually appreciate how much fun life can be when you're busy self-medicating with the curtains closed, isolated, with no friends around you. And that was, that was the model that we went with. And uh, it, I, I'd like to think it was successful because we're now, well, you know, it resolves in its 16th year, um, having celebrated a number of awards for, it, for its services, which I'm very proud of. Um, but more importantly, having seen the overwhelming majority of people coming into the service, leaving having successfully completed their treatment journey in the way that was appropriate for them. And it wasn't six, 12 weeks, six months, one year. We we had people for whom it, it required many years for them to go through a cycle and to relapse and to be able to be allowed to come back and to not worry that that you know because it didn't work last time, there'd be no faith in them this time. We, we said every time okay, maybe this is the time for you. Um, and uh, I was the same as that. I had uh, a number of occasions before I was able to look at life in a way that, that gave me optimism and positivity. So that's, that That was basically it. I've I merely tried to hand on the baton for all the good people that had helped me through my journey on for people that are going through the same thing or similar things uh, in their journey.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant and really, really inspiring. And, you know, I guess what we've kind of been talking about is neither of us probably, we really use the term recovery without doing it, you know, <laughs> with a lot of question marks being raised, because it is such a uniquely personal and individual experience, all the factors that led to developing that problem that will look so different for every single person that the the answer or, you know, solution, again, it's the kind of wrong term, the journey out of that um, is always going to be so complex and nuanced. But ultimately, you know, I think, you know, it's about finding a kind of meaning and purpose in life that gives you value and reward and connection without needing to use alcohol or drugs or whatever to kind of plug or fill that gap. And I guess that's, that's often the issue with, with treatment or rehabs is sometimes, you know, like they don't or aren't able to equip people well enough for when they go back into their, home environment or you know you know if if you if nothing else has changed in the environment then it's very difficult however much you've kind of may want to change or have have done other stuff that that other home environment can be full of cues and triggers and pressures um and but whereas if you can kind of go back into it or into the world or approach the world with with kind of a sense of or a purpose or, or things that you really want to pursue that are going to really help you. And I think that is why, you know, mutual aid really often does work is it provides social networks who, um, you know, are geared around not using drugs or alcohol. Um, so it provides that really important social function. But then for other people, it's it's other things. And, you know, we've talked about golf for me, you know, I don't really say I'm in recovery, even though I've had past problems with with alcohol in particular but I am very conscious of always thinking about how my mental health is and I know that some things are good for it and some things are not good for it and you know like I need to do as much of the things that are good for it as I can and you know sometimes you you know when it's not going so well or life is extra challenging then I realize yeah like it would be easier to kind of maybe want to go back to to using uh, alcohol or whatever it might be to kind of like shortcut or avoid the kind of negative feelings or anxiety that that, those, that period might be generating. But it's just a conscious process of knowing what, what's good for me and what, what's good for my mental health generally out there. And that includes good social connections and meaningful activities. And for me, golf, which I understand a lot of people judge, but you like it too. So yeah, I think. I think that's, um, you know, that service as a really holistic thing that really takes account of a person's needs and where they are and what they want Um, is is really, yeah, sounds like an amazing example, and obviously has been doing well if it's been going for sixteen years in these really tough, challenging funding times.
1: No, indeed, and actually, interestingly, what we've not talked about is is how addictive behavior traits can often be used very positively. Um, In as much as I remember being told by somebody some years back that uh, addicts often make make the best entrepreneurs, um, principally because we're not afraid of risk, Um, you know, and I think it's that my my ability to be the complete opposite of risk averse, (laughs) but to have people around me that would observe the risk for me so we could have a conversation about whether or not this was worth doing. Um, but i think it's 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 also that ability to be able to be single mindedly focused on a single thing and I, and I, and i do attribute a large amount of the growth of the charity down to my ability to be able to say this is worth the risk because the payoff is going to be great not for me but for the organisation and therefore for our beneficiaries and um you know sometimes stuff doesn't work that is the whole point about it um but uh also, it's that thing about as much like you saying have another out there. I too found golf again, having played many, many years ago. Um, and uh, my my wife is now a golf widow because I have probably found that my my most recent addiction is golf. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Alice Cooper says that he says he gave up drugs and then got addicted to golf. Um, you know, and it's healthy. I'm out with people. I'm you know. In, in good social environments, I'm walking four and a half miles a day, and swinging some sticks around. Uh, probably in my case, I'm walking a bit more than four and a half miles a day. Um, and uh, but it's you know it, it's an, it's another thing. I'm I'm a, probably applying the same personal attitudes to playing golf as I would have done to misusing drugs in the past because I'm single-minded about it and doing it, and um, you know it, it, it's. But it's healthy, and people say, well, that's okay then, isn't it? Um, you know, some of the most successful athletes on this planet have, have definitely applied the same strategies as, a, as addicts have in addiction because they've been single-minded about how they wanted to, to apply themselves to that particular thing. So it's, um, it's I think it's a very complex – I know it's a very complex subject, um, but, but out of it what we generally get are people who are – a- able then and equipped to deal with some of the most adverse parts of life because they've been through their own lived experiences,
0: yeah, and I think yeah, like you say, that kind of pursuit i mean you know like from a sort of scientific perspective um you know like addiction scientists don't like the idea of like an addiction addictive personality because it's you know it's in reality much more complex than that and yeah but like I think for a lot of people they feel like they can relate to that with when they've had an addiction experience because they tend to apply themselves very fully to other things and yeah so in, in that kind of kind of more general sense I kind of relate to it and I think um yeah like it's you know, the, the, again the term addiction is very widely used for things that you know often probably aren't that bad for you so yeah like we might be a bit obsessed or kind of over into golf, like if you ask the partners or the family or whatever. But for us, it's it's working and fulfill, fulfilling an important function. And yeah, Mark Lewis, the kind of sort of neuroscientist who argues against the kind of disease model of addiction says, you know, lots of what lots of people do looks like addiction. If you think about obsessively playing golf or a or sports team or falling in love, those behaviours are very much you know aligned with like how people pursue drugs or alcohol or whatever despite like the negative consequences so um and like you say yeah it's like the social side of it and um yeah a bit of exercise as well and you know I I know people who play golf because they say it keeps me out of the pub for you know five hours on a Saturday and (laughs) you know they they definitely have a few drinks after but they're, they're practicing harm minimization in a way even though they they wouldn't recognize that term so yeah
1: no abs- absolutely yeah.
0: so um so that's been really fascinating and i really you know i'm really grateful for you sh- for sharing your experience and yeah um yeah so so you've retired from um resolve which you which you founded and set up and ran for 16 years but it still exists as a service in Hertfordshire I think
1: that's correct yeah I actually I actually retired on the 31st of March 23 uh, which was almost 15 years exactly to the day that we first started with uh, with with resolve Um, yes there was three of us originally but the other two moved on uh, very early on and uh, so yeah I drove it Um, I didn't didn't do it alone of course I did it with uh, an ever-increasing number of people throughout the whole of the 15 years. Some people come in and some people going. A trustee board, staff, volunteers, people who became my friends, um, and so so on. Um, and I think the other thing as well is what I did was I always looked to develop relationships with, with people um, so that they would see the work of the organisation and that that, in turn, will – help people find it and it's. I don't think it's enough to say if you build it they will come because they need to know it's there and so we did a lot of work around making sure that as many people as possible would know it was there so that those that did need it were able to find it if they were ready for it. I mean in terms of the legacy uh, I'm you know I'm very proud of what Resolve has achieved over the years and uh, we spent quite some time um, with a bit of a succession plan in terms of bringing the team in. Um, and uh, the, the new CEO actually was a former trustee, um, so quite close to home in that regard, but somebody who comes from a charity background as well. There were external applicants, so it wasn't a done deal. Um, and, uh, and so the organisation continues. How it will go going forward um, is going to be up to the new team. I took the decision quite early on that because Resolve had formed such a, an, an integral part of my life that moving on, I kind of had to leave it to the people that were I was entrusting it to. Um, nobody really wants somebody looking over their shoulder going, is that the way you want to do it? Because that I don't think that's conducive to a positive environment. So I, I entrusted it to those that are going to take it on to the next stage. Um, in whichever form that is. Um, but I know that I left a, a growing, healthy, strong, well recognized organization that people would said very nice things about over the years. And so it has every chance of going on another 15 and more years, uh, as long as there is a need for it in all of the ways that the, that the organization works. Certainly 15 years ago, if you'd have said, You'd have had, you know, all those units and all those services running 15 years later. I'd have said you're mad, but it, that's the way it went. Um, and as I say, I was I was very fortunate on lots of levels and I, I, I feel very uh, honoured and humbled to have been part of that, that journey with, with, with the organisation and people credit me for leading it. So, you know, I, I think that's been a, an amazing experience and, and, and one of a number of big positives for me in terms of going forward well, I moved to Derbyshire I I live in a wonderful very, very rural area Um, I married uh, my wife uh, in 2017 just to show you that I can get a a, a relationship and and make it work again (coughs) and uh, we live a very different, very, very different life to the life that I had only a few years ago and um, you know, it's I think it's that. It's just about thinking about how you can enjoy life without worrying about what you're going to do tomorrow, you know, to, to a certain extent. Um, it isn't about saying, oh, well, I'm wealthy and therefore I don't need to work. It's about saying there are more important things in life than worrying about the pounds, shillings, and pence, as Minan used to say. You know, so in that regard, I think I'm the best example of it's better to be born lucky than rich because I made it, made it despite all the odds, I made it. Um, And and if I can do it, then there's hope for everyone. Um, I think the only thing I would say to temper that is that sadly, there is a very small proportion of people for whom life has been so difficult and so tragic and so hard um, that we need to find a way to support those people because they can't have the luck that I had I was you know I wasn't born opiate dependent or you know uh, fetal uh, alcohol syndrome or any of those other things with, with a with a mother that was misusing whilst I was in the womb for those people that have no, never known any other life we need as a society I feel to do something different that helps them at least attain some level of social interaction and in life that is going to be afford them some kind of reward for living because I do feel that there are a group of people and we met people um, throughout the 15 years of Resolve for whom we had no answers. All we could do was allow them to come and be part of the process as long as they could handle it and drop in and out. That's another thing. Many, many statutory services won't allow people to drop in and out as and when they're ready because they have to follow a protocol. And I think there are things there that we need to learn because those people for whom life is too difficult need a, a greater safety net, a large a larger network of, of of services in which they can access as and when they're ready, so that we can help to bring those people to a place where they're not constantly you know misusing and and then having to access public services.
0: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. And I also think You know, like investment in treatment services, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, has really, really been hit quite hard and means it's hard, much harder for kind of smaller localised services to come. So, yeah, hopefully that kind of turns around in the next 15 years a bit more and that that exactly as you say, that supporting the people that have had kind of the the worst hands dealt in life is is really important. But, you know, and I also think we also really need – or the upstream you know the public health stuff you know alcohol is still very normalized widely available, heavily marketed there's supposed to be you know rules that mean that children are not seeing alcohol advertising, but they recognize famous alcohol brands um yeah, I think we need the kind of top and bottom up approaches, but yeah, just thank you so much for for coming on the show and sharing you know you're really Powerful, honest um, experiences, and yeah, and again, yeah, it is you do deserve a lot of credit. I think for for the work you have done since. So um, yeah, thanks so much, Joe.
1: Thanks, James. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast. So please feel free to follow us or get in touch there.